Welcome back to Finest Hours. I am Braden Cromar, joined as always by my co-host Hayden Hansen and our executive producer Skylar Williams. What's up, everybody? Howdy ho. As it's... promised, just two weeks later, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's probably closer to about four months, and I will admit that that is solely my fault. And it's my fault because I mean I hate to use the excuse I'm busy because it's just an hour of you know, one month or two weeks that we do this, but I can happily just announce that I have successfully been admitted to grad school. So that's been the reason why it's taken me so long to get these guys together, do another episode. But boom, baby, guess what? We're back. Happy to be back. Happy to be doing a episode that I've wanted to do ever since we started the podcast, but my love of World War II history got in the way and I just kept doing World War II history episode after World War II history episode. And now we can look back 30 years into the future and talk about the 1960s and 1970s. So if you have not listened to our previous episode on Bill Bowerman, definitely want to encourage you at this time to listen to that episode first, learn a bit about Bill Bowerman, because we can't tell this story without telling you the story of Bill Bowerman. Yeah, we did the Bill Bowerman episode of August 8, 2020. Bill Bowerman, the soldier, the coach, the innovator. Definitely go ahead and give that episode a listen before jumping in today's episode because things will start to make a little bit more sense. But with that said, let's go ahead and jump in. Who's going to get us started off? I would love to. All right. Now, today, if you travel to the beautiful Nike World headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon, you're going to see many tributes to world-class athletes. Uh, they've got tons of busts and plaques all over the place, famous athletes' names everywhere. But there is only one athlete that has a statue of themselves on that campus, and that is Steve Prefontaine. Now, in the Steve Prefontaine building, you will find a timeline of Nike's history and a mural that is dedicated to Steve Prefontaine reading The Soul of Nike. So this dude's pretty big stuff up there in Beaverton. If you are not a runner, you may not be familiar with his name at all. And you might be thinking to yourself, what is so special about this guy? Well, co-founder of Nike, Phil Knight, made famous through the song where somebody says Phil Knight tricked us all. That's Macklemore. He's not made famous by <laughs> Phil Knight's more famous than Macklemore. <laughs> Macklemore, that extremely famous guy whose name I forgot from Seattle. Is that right? Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, he won't shut up about it. Like, we get it, dude. You're from Seattle. But congratulations on being born in that particular region of the United States. <laughs> Never been better. Well, anyway, Phil Knight. Uh, had something to say about Steve Prefontaine. Phil Knight is like the 25th per richest person in the world. So big guy. Really? And yeah, he's been he's up there. basically like retired for like... 20, he's the 25th. He's worth like 40 billion right now. Holy cow. Or that was like July of last year was that number. It was like 39.6 or something. So he's kind of famous. He's kind of rich. But if he wasn't dropped in that song, I wouldn't even know him. So it's probably a good thing. <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> no, it's not. You would. <laughs> 
But that's all I can think of now whenever I hear his name. Bill Knight was like the Elon Musk of the 1990s. He was the Elon Musk of clothes for a minute. I got a sweet hat that says Uncle Phil on it. That's Nike. That's sick. And meanwhile, Phil is like, who? (laughs) 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 Who is Skylar Williams? Oh, that's good. It's your nephew, dude. Um, Yeah, your nephew man come on give me some of that inheritance anyway so phil knight has this awesome quote about steve prefontaine prefontaine becomes known worldwide as pre it's a lot easier than prefontaine so anyway he says pre was unlike any other athlete the u.s had ever seen though it was hard to say exactly why i'd spent a lot of time studying him admiring him I'd ask myself time and again, what was it about Pre that triggered such visceral responses from so many people? I never did come up with a totally satisfactory answer. Many have also never reached a conclusion, and there was always so much mystique about Pre. Which is true, especially if you look up his quotes. Steve, yeah, Pre was one of the most quotable athletes of all time, and we'll probably share some. Maybe now's a good time to do it, but or maybe we'll wait until later. Should we maybe wait until later? During the episode, we'll just put bits of us saying a quote. Maybe we'll just we interrupt gotta, it. We gotta look him up. And we'll say a, a prefontaine quote. Actually, I have one of his quotes on my resume. <laughs> what? 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 That's either the best resume out there or the worst <laughs> resume out there. <laughs> Is the quote, someone may beat me, but they're going to have to bleed to do it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> no, it's, uh, hold on, I got to make sure I, I know which one I put on there. Who puts a quote on their resume? <laughs> Dude, everybody does these We got to talk about this. No, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> yeah, you got to stand out, man. You have to put it right next to your picture. Are you sure you're not a Gen Z? Like, are you sure, sure? Oh, I'm positive. Actually, I think I am. I don't know. So that would be very interesting, Hayden, if we are a different generation than Skylar. But that would also start to make sense of a lot of things. That would make so. Yeah. (laughs) It's the one that says to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. That's great. And really something I'm glad that you shared, Skylar. Yeah. Well, uh... I've gotten two jobs so far because of it. (laughs) (laughs) Just because of the quote. In fact, that's the whole resume. <laughs> that is the resume. They're like, hmm, I see potential. And They're like, like hmm, quite. <laughs> <laughs> I took a French business class in college. And over in Europe, they expect you to put a picture on your resume, a picture of yourself. So and over here, racial like, profile of you, no, no doubt. Probably right. <laughs> but over here, that's like so taboo, like bleh. I have my LinkedIn profile up there, like the URL. Oh, yeah. So they can just go to my, so they can go access the URL and see my, my photo and then racially profile me. <laughs> but they have to dig to do it. <laughs> right. But they have to bleach to do it. <laughs> but they have to bleed to do it. There you, go. you may find a picture of me, but you'll have to bleed to do it. <laughs> That's bad. Love that. So I did find a quote I want to share because this one's dope. Oh, go for it. So you'll probably find another one that's also dope considering everything he said was awesome. But this one says, no matter how hard you train, somebody will train harder. 
No matter how hard you run, somebody will run harder. No matter how hard you want it, somebody will want it more. I am somebody. <laughs> that is so like, That's a great riddle. <laughs> I mean, I, I love Steve Prefontaine, but that is so cheesy. Okay, here, here's, funny. here's another one that I love. The best pace is a suicide pace, and today is a good day to die. Yeah, that's a good one. That is a good one. I like that one. Anyway, let, let's continue down the story. We'll probably share some quotes later because there's just so many that we can do. So, Skyler, keep us keep us moving here. Oh, where are we? Oh, there we go. So we're going to rewind back to the late 1960s and 1970s where the story of Prefontaine begins. When track and field was one of the most popular sports in the world. I feel like it's kind of been a roller coaster ride with track and field where it gets really popular and then it kind of dies down and then it gets kind of a little bit more popular and then it dies back down. But with Prefontaine, it was always, always exciting to watch him race. Have you guys noticed that anytime you tell someone that you ran track and field, they just instinctively ask what your mile time was as if no other event exists. They just want to know what your mile. How fast was your mile? How fast was your mile? Oh, do you still usually ask me what my pole vault height was? (laughs) No, they (laughs) do. That's like, I I, I did field and track. I field and track, yo. I get that all the time. And I begrudgingly just say not fast enough. (laughs) (laughs) It it wasn't. I was very unhappy with it. It was decent, but not fast enough. Continuing on. It's a bit of foreshadowing. Anyway, so uh, Pre grew up in a small fishing town called Coos Bay, Oregon. Um, He was an arrogant adolescent teen um, and was smashing state track and field records. By the time he was a senior... Pre had become the top high school distance runner in the nation by a long shot. He was beating opponents as much as an entire home stretch. In his final two years of high school, he did not lose a single race and set a high school record in the two mile, which I did look up and it was, hold on, I had it. Get that time. We need that time. It was fast. 841.5. Oh, that's pretty good. (laughs) So fast in high school. As a 17-year-old, 17, 17 18-year-old kid, that is ridiculously fast. That so would still, fast. you know, 50 years later, <laughs> yeah, 50 years later, that would still be winning almost every maybe year. national championships for high school today. Oh, yeah. 60 years later. Blisteringly fast. On fire. To be fair, I mean, it says he didn't lose a race for two years i'm pretty sure i haven't lost a race for two years either <laughs> how many races have you run in the last Just two kidding years? i have run a race in the last two years I did, did you lose <laughs> <laughs> uh, our our road our work road races and turkey trots just don't count they just don't count anymore so my dad in, in, my dad in high school <clears throat> only lost one race that's uh, in his really? cross country, and that was the state race his senior year. How did I not know about when he was that? at his best? I don't know. He was really good. Cromar, why'd you never ask? Well, the state course was different back then. <clears throat> and I th- what'd he do? 15, so he was like the guy. 1520 or something like that was the <laughs> state. 
Yeah, that is pretty quick. Assuming um, it's a five k. It was pretty good. Yeah, it was a five k for grass. Um, yeah, that's really on grass. Good. So he was. Yeah, he was really good. He uh, he shared a story once where he ran like a uh, the course was short and it ended up being like two point seven five miles. So like one of those dumb dual meet races, uh-huh. but he ran like what was it 14 14 45 or something like that and it went out as a 5k <laughs> so he got a bunch of letters saying hey come run for us come run for us it's amazing false advertising the most yeah, false important advertising. False advertising that's the funny most important part of getting into a good school so we'll go back to Steve Prefontaine. Yeah, where well, this episode is about Prefontaine, not Skyler's dad. No, it's also no, about no. Brett. A little bit about Brett, a lot about Steve. <laughs> a lot, mostly, mostly about Steve. There's a little Brett in there, but mostly Steve. So Pre got scholarship offers from every, literally every school in the country. Everyone wanted this kid, but he had a burning desire to run for the track and field mecca, which was Bill Bowerman's Oregon Ducks, and again. If you haven't listened, if you haven't paused this and you haven't listened to the Bill Bowerman episode, go back and listen to that. Um, get an understanding for Bill Bowerman. But um, Bowerman had no interest in recruiting athletes ever. Um, he seldom gave out scholarships because he didn't want his athletes to develop any sense of entitlement. He didn't want to be coaching any spoiled brats. And of course, this is a time when tuition was much less expensive than it is today. Uh, but the assistant coach begged Bowerman to just send pre a letter, let him know that you're interested in coaching him. And Bill eventually agreed to do it. And that was enough for pre to commit to the university of Oregon. The university of Oregon was hot. Then it's still hot. Now, like if you're a track and field athlete, that's one of the schools you want to go to. Yeah, if, or, if you want to compete, um, not even on the internet, I'm not even on the national stage, but on the international stage, like the University of Oregon is the best track and field program in really the history of the world. Really, we can honestly and confidently say that yeah. they are the best of the best. So the relationship between Bill Bowerman and Steve Prefontaine started off very chippy. When Pre was a freshman, Bill told Pre, "Next week, I want you to run the two mile." pre-responded sharply with i don't run the two mile he turned and started to walk away and that's when bill responded with then tell me which university you expect to run for next week because it won't be this one pre-walked out of the room and then returned a short while later and he said all right i'll run the two mile but i'm not gonna like it and then he would proceed to break the school's two mile record that week (laughs) (laughs) he didn't like it but he broke the record so over the next two years, Pre ends up going undefeated in outdoor track and setting American records in the 5,000 and the 3,000, and he earned two NCAA titles. So not too shabby for, you know, two years of work. Pre at this time was developing a massive fan base, track and field being extremely popular in the biggest track and field town in the U.S., uh, week after week during the track season, 25,000 fans would flock to Hayward Field to watch him race. So I looked up the population of Eugene, Oregon <laughs> in 1970. And unfortunately, I only found it for the metropolitan statistical area, and it was about 200,000. But 
I found it for 1960 and it was about 50,000 people in Eugene itself. So nice. you're bringing out just about half of the population, which I'm glad you know, that's not bad. I am glad that you looked that up. Yeah, he quite literally turned track and field into a spectator sport. Like people showed up literally by the thousands chanting his name, watching him compete. Like you know, I, It's interesting. Maybe it was the same as it is today where it's just, you know, friends and family, but he just made a lot of friends. <laughs> yeah, he had a lot of friends. And this, I mean, this is before Instagram. <laughs> so that's a lot of work. It's running past people saying, hey, come come watch me race tomorrow. But he dropped flyers off at doors. <laughs> but at this point, 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, this sport is more popular than football, than basketball at this point. It um, wasn't cool. So Bill Bowerman and Steve Prefontaine, they would continue to butt heads because Pre was a front runner. He would lead races from start to finish, which any runner knows is really hard work. The leader of the race does 10% more work to set the pace and fight off the wind. When Pre was beaten, it would be usually by an older opponent who would sit behind him 90% of the race and outsprint him in the end, and Pre hated it. He thought that this was a cowardly way to win a race. Bowerman tried relentlessly to change this behavior in Pre, but Pre would not be changed. He told Bill that he doesn't want to win unless he know he did his best. And the only way he knew to do that was to run flat out and out front until he had nothing left. So Pre and his fellow Oregonians were competing on the international circuit, winning in Western Europe, Scandinavia, and the USSR. Pre's rebel streak continued. The Amateur Athletic Association, or the AAU, was very strict with their American athletes. They were only allowed $3 per day while traveling, and their competition was limited as a result of the AAU sanctions. Um, So Pre despised the AAU because he hated competing against lesser competition. And who wouldn't? Um, He wanted to compete against the best. Furthermore, the EU athletes were supplied with all of the living necessities they needed, while Pre, who was living on food stamps, had to work outside of the track in order to make ends meet. So he campaigned against them by pointing out to the foreign meat promoters that the AAU was bad for their box office sales, which would lead to the eventual dissolvement of the AAU as a governing body. Pre-wiped them off the face of the earth. Yeah, which is fantastic. Like, if you're an athlete, you do not want to compete. You don't want to have a governing body that sucks. Yeah. And people complain about the NCAA now, (laughs) which you just mentioned. People complain about the NCAA now, but the NCAA is not nearly as strict as the AAU was. Like, not even close. Obviously, the the NCAA can at least be bribed. Well, the NCAA... (laughs) The NCAA doesn't regulate who your competition is. Like you just compete That's against true. your fellow collegiate athletes from any school in the country or, or internationally that you want to compete with. They just don't let you make any money. Like it would be like it would be like the NCAA saying, um, "Okay, Alabama, you cannot play Ohio State so. in football." Like. How messed up would that be? And then Alabama just goes on to steamroll like Kentucky for like a national championship or something like that. That'd be so lame and stupid. And that's what the AAU was doing for decades, really. 
European athletes got everything they wanted. They were so entitled. I mean, they they were still they were still <laughs> amateurs, but like they got room and board at the schools, and the AAU didn't allow that. It's messed up. Three dollars a day. Three bucks a day. And a crappy hotel. Wait, yeah. let's do inflation calculation. Inflation calculation, three bucks. What's your stipend? What do they call that? I bet it's not a massive change. Per diem. Per diem. $3 a day. Too much. So let's call this 1970. That's a good year. Let's call it 1970. So 20 bucks, which, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, when you're traveling, 20 bucks isn't going to get you very far. No. No. You could probably get a nice baguette. Yeah, you're on your own for breakfast, lunch, and dinner yeah, for 20 rough. bucks a day. Dinner, like you can't even go to, it seems like you can't even go to a restaurant without having to pay at least 20 bucks for your meal. It sure ain't tipping. <laughs> <laughs> so Keep five cents. <laughs> 20 <Yeah. laughs> That was excellent service. Thank you so much. Here's a nickel. Here's a nickel. <laughs> you don't spend it all in one place. You can give I know I can't. I want to. Imagine you're a elite collegiate yeah. athlete, one of the best in the world, and you're going to places like Finland to compete, and you get 20 bucks a day in Finland, which, mind you, not a cheap place to live, and you're basically staying at the same thing as a Motel 6, and you got 20 bucks a day to get you through breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you're an elite athlete, so you need to be pounding calories all day. I'm glad you added calories. Yeah. I mean, these guys are probably eating 4,000 calories a day. Oh, I remember when I ate 4,000 calories a day. Those were the days. It was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally, it was yesterday. Oh, that's great. All right. Moving on. At the 1972 Olympic Trials. A runner from the University of Wisconsin named George Young would be challenging Pre in the 5,000 meters. Young had a very powerful finishing kick, and since Pre was so resistant to changing his running style, Bill developed a plan for Pre. He would run all 12 laps in negative splits, meaning he was running each lap progressively faster than the previous one. Pre ended up winning with a 50-meter lead, running a time of 13 minutes and 22 seconds. Oh. Which isn't too bad of a game plan. Like, if you yeah. go out and run and you negative split, you end up feeling pretty good. And it's, that's 12 laps. That's really, really hard to do, especially as a person who's setting the pace. Yeah, you set the pace, and then that. each lap you have to go faster and break the people behind you. Yeah, precisely, precisely. 425 pace? 425 pace. My PR, my best time in the mile is 418. So do 425 for five for three miles. 3.2-ish so miles. So pre-qualifies for the 1972 5,000 meters Olympic finals held in Munich, Germany. Pre would be competing against the reigning champion from Finland, Lasse Varen. The first couple miles were very close, not really noteworthy. Most distance races, you're just setting yourself up for that final, for that final push. But with the final mile, 
So Prehead agreed to follow Bill's direction to follow behind the leaders, saving his energy for the final kick. And with two laps to go, Pre made his move, moving away from the pack. Rival Lasse Varenne would pass him with one lap or 400 meters to go, and Pre sat back awaiting another final push. Mohamed Gamudi, a Tunisian soldier, was also in the mix. So it was Pre, Gamudi, and Varenne with 200 meters to go. And at this point, it's still very much anyone's race. They were all neck and neck with 100 meters to go. And in a final last-ditch effort, Varenne was able to pull away, followed by Gamudi. Pre seemed like a sure third-place finish when Ian Stewart of Great Britain passed him in the final 10 meters, leaving Pre with a fourth-place finish. Ian's the worst, man. <laughs> Freaking Brits, man. <laughs> Why do they always got to piss in our Cheerios? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> that race is so frustrating to watch because... Well, it's a great race to watch, though. It is it such is, a great race to watch. But it's like with 200 meters left, he's, he gives this little push, and then he like mentally is like, wait, I can't yet. And I think that's what does it to him. Like if yeah. he would have just went, I think he could have won. But he like starts to go, looks around, and then slows back down to stay with them. And then they're just able to. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's exciting as like any football game I've ever seen, any basketball game I've ever seen. It really is, in, in track and field history, one of the greatest races to watch. But yeah, you're right. You're right. Go look that up on YouTube. Most of the videos will just be that last mile of them racing, but it's so exciting because he literally, and pardon my French, has his balls to the wall and is like... Sounds he's, painful. Yeah, it is painful he is just dude, he's grinding the whole time and you're like i don't know if i could do that i mean i never did yeah this, obviously you'll, like you'll see you go and try <laughs> you'll see the last mile because distance running those first you know this first 75 percent of the race is really just about separating your like it's pretty obvious who the best runners are and who aren't and you're just trying to wear each other down. And then it all just comes down to that last push. And it is so close. Like, I know what's going to happen when I rewatch it. And every time so I see exciting. it, it feels like there's going to be a different result every time. But there's not. Pre had been running first place. If he sat back and ran for third, then he almost certainly would have been awarded a medal. But that that wasn't Steve Prefontaine style. It was his push to win the gold that just took so much out of him that left him with the fourth place finish. So how did he feel after being a loser for the first time in years? <laughs> I mean, totally, totally dejected. I think in a lot of ways, Pre was probably the favorite. He was certainly the one making all the headlines, even though that La Saberen was the uh, was the reigning champion from the 68 Olympics. But Pre had a teammate in that was competing in the marathon. And you know, Pre walks off the track totally, totally dejected. He talks with a sportscaster who kind of like puts his arm around him and is like, hey, you finished fourth place in the world. How bad could that be? And Pre kind of started to lighten up a little bit. He met up with his teammate at the finish line of the marathon. And his teammate was kind of bummed that he finished fourth place, kind of moped around for a little bit. And Pre was like, hey, you finished fourth place in the world. Like, how bad can that be? And he's like, okay, 
yeah, I guess that's not so bad. And his teammate realizing that Pre must have run his race at this point was like, hey, Pre, how'd you finish? And Pre was like, I got freaking fourth, man. It's the worst position you can possibly get. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's the first loser. Well, I guess second's the first loser, but. Yeah, I mean, going for like a, any good a recognition. Yeah, when you're going for I mean, a medal in the Olympics, it's it's I guess it's more of the first loser, but I mean, yeah, but but Pre really was <clears> going for that first place victory. That I mean, it was first or last for Steve Prefontaine. So in his mind, you know, he might as well have finished last. <laughs> but he was 22, 21 years old, by mm-hmm. far the youngest kid in the race, finishing fourth place against the best in the world. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. So when Pre returned to Oregon, he kind of went to a state of isolation. He was no longer seen running around town. When someone told him that the city of Eugene was going to name a street after him, his response was, great. What are they going to call it? Fourth Street? (laughs) Uh, So he took up a gig as a bartender at a local Eugene pub where he stumbled across Bill Bowerman. Bill had only stopped by to talk some sense into Pre. He told Pre that the best race he'd seen him run was in Munich. And if Pre had run like he did in the trials, he would have beat the competition by 50 yards. It took some convincing, but Pre had been fired up and ready to start training again for the 76 Olympics in Montreal. Which actually Nike, now think about it, Nike named a shoe after this. The pre-Montreal, they named a shoe after him. That's a bit of foreshadowing. We'll get into this next next bit here. So Pre had soon after taken a job with Nike Incorporated, and he traveled across the country helping to promote the young brand. With his first paycheck, he bought a butterscotch MG convertible that he would race around town. So that brings us to May 29th, 1975. So he's one year out from the Olympics at this point. Pre competes in an annual exhibition track meet at Hayward Field. This was an event that was meant to help generate enough funds to keep the track in decent shape. He ran the 5K and won, beating friend and Olympic marathon gold medalist Frank Shorter. And the night after the race, the track athletes and fans gathered for a party in the early morning hours. Pre drove his friend Frank Shorter home. And on the drive home, he told Frank that he would win the 5K in the 1976 Olympic Games with a time of 12 minutes and 36 seconds, which would be a new world record. Now, before flipping his car around to leave, Pre asked Frank if he wanted to run an easy 10 miles in the morning. Frank agreed, waving him off so he could get some sleep. I wish I could run an easy 10 miles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's no no such thing as an easy 10 anymore. (laughs) Not for me. So a 12.36 was the goal to set a world record. So I looked up what pace that would be. That is 4.03 per mile. Yeah, it's like four-minute pace. Yeah, that's disgusting. So after dropping Frank off, Pre takes off, making his way down the hill to a trailer that he had been living in. And what happens next is a little bit of an unknown, but documentation says that he was run off the road by an oncoming vehicle. His butterscotch MG crashed into a rock wall, which set the vehicle into the air. The MG came down on top of him, crushing his chest. Pre quietly passed away that night, the weight of the MG suffocating him. The autopsy revealed that Pre had not broken a single bone from the accident. 
Pre was sort of this un this unhuman figure. I mean, obviously mortal. Barely. To not have broken a single bone from the accident is a little. It's very interesting. I don't know why I find that so interesting, but it is very interesting. Have you ever broken a bone? No. The running world was devastated, along with the people of Oregon. A memorial was held at Hayward Field, in which the eulogy was delivered in 12 minutes, 36 seconds, the time that Pre had told Frank that he would run in the upcoming Olympics. You know, that's pretty cool that they would do something like that. And to also just think of what that meant to Frank, where it was a pretty serious number for Frank to then, you know, remember that and have that be a large part of the ceremony and things like that. I think that that's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just, just as we're going along the story, things are going well for Bree and all of a sudden he is just gone and the running world is totally shocked. We're still shocked. Yeah. It kind of sucks because you could only imagine the records he would have broken if he didn't pass away. Um, yeah. Absolutely incredible runner. Um, and just like he always did, he would just grind and grind and grind and push and push and push. And I you know that takes a lot of guts to, to be able to run like that. And you don't see that that often. And so, to not be able to see someone that was an amazing runner, not accomplish everything that, you know, he could have, you know, sucks. Yeah. People were so taken back by it. I mean, I I remember from Phil Knight's biography, Shoe Dog, he writes about getting a call at 3 a.m. in the morning from his banker saying Steve Prefontaine had died from his banker. But this was also the effect Steve Prefontaine had on on the world but also but i mean especially the community of eugene and the state of oregon pre died holding every american record from the 2000 meters to the 10,000 meters he held eight collegiate records broke his own american records 14 times and broke the four minute mile nine times his influence continues to be very strong in the running world and yeah, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, he left us with one of the most quotable athletes in the world. He broke the <clears throat> the four minute mile. Was it nine times? So his fastest time is three minutes fifty four seconds, or three minutes fifty four point six seconds, which is just very random but cool. Is Nike backwards if you do it on the keypad? Three fifty four point six. The only reason why I know that is because I worked there for a while. And that's their password. And that's their password. For everything. <laughs> that's their password for everything. But uh, so many good pre-quotes saying a race is a work of art that people can look at and be as affected in and as many ways as they're capable of understanding, which he honestly, truly believed. Okay, here I got another one. This one's really good. I like this one a lot. I'm going to work so that it's a pure guts race at the end. And if it is... I am the only one who can win it. Sometimes I read these and I'm like, did he really say this? Or are people just like making things up and say like that Abraham Lincoln quote where it's like, don't believe everything you read on the internet. (laughs) No, I mean, these are, these are real. These are documented, but he left us as one of the most quotable inspirational athletes of all time. I think his most widely known quote that Skylar has on his resume is to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. 
And maybe yeah. that's a good place to leave it. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where we left off our Bill Bowerman episode when we did that seven months ago. Yeah. Actually, I think it's, it's closer to nine months, I think. Um, but after the 72 Olympic Games, after the death of Prefe- Steve Prefontaine, Bill just really kind of started to go downhill. He started to look a lot more withered than he previously did. He retired from coach le- coaching soon after, moved back to a very rural area of Fossil, helped still continue to serve on the board of Nike, and will pass away in 1996. But it really was the 72 Olympics and the death of Steve Prefontaine that, you know, at that point, Bill was kind of just done. Okay, one more quote. This one's pretty good. Something inside of me just said, hey, wait a minute. I want to beat him. And I just took off. Isn't that so true when it comes to when it comes to running? Like, I, I distinctly remember that feeling. Like, I want to beat that guy. In I, a do, race. I still do it today. Like, <clears throat> running on Main Street and someone pops out of <laughs> another street. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to pass that person. How dare that person get in front of me? <laughs> Dude pulls up next to me in a Corvette. And I'm like, hey. <laughs> beat this guy on foot no but i i i remember that and that's really i think it's so hard to put into words and it's maybe everything that sports is really comes down to at the end is that very impulsive desire you just have to beat that person and it's not just limited to sports you know we see it in other aspects of life but uh pre was followed that man His quote that has most affected me to this day, what kind of crazy nut would spend two or three hours a day just running? (laughs) (laughs) Tell you what, it ain't me. Is that really one of his quotes? That's one that's attributed to him. (laughs) Like I said, sometimes I'm like, ah, did he really say that? That's not his quote. He's got some really good ones. And then there's like some like ones where, like I said, I'm just like, I don't know, like. Like, I'll tell you this one. But you never know because here. after a race, like who knows what you'll say after a race. I hate when people interview other people after they like ran super well, hard. Like, yeah. Oh, how'd you feel? Okay, more more Steve Prefontaine quotes. These are just too good. See, I I've known who Steve Prefontaine was ever since I was in third grade, and I still can't say his name properly. A lot of people run a race to see who is the fastest. I run to see who has the most guts who can punish himself into an exhausting pace and at the end punish himself even more. See, this quote here is one where I'm like, I'm pretty sure somebody else said that and put his name under it because he never says anything else like this. He says, success isn't how far you got, but the distance you traveled from where you started. And I'm like, no, that's too heartwarming. Yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, it is, but it is, it is also attributed to him. Yeah, Maybe that's a good place to left off. The distance you traveled from where you started. Very good. Fired. Inspired. inspired that's what we're here for so thus concludes our episode on steve prefontaine the very legendary steve prefontaine in many ways skyler you get to close us out as you always do so hope you guys enjoyed this wonderful episode about prefontaine definitely an inspiration to all please give us a follow on our instagram finest hours podcast if you don't have Instagram, send us an email at finesthourspod at gmail.com um, and let us know who you would like us to talk about in the future. We'll we might or might not do an episode on them. It just depends. Yeah, we, yeah. Get, 
we get hundreds of requests every day but it's all like abraham lincoln and <laughs> yeah we want <laughs> you guys know who abraham lincoln is we ain't trying to do an episode on abraham lincoln We're trying to do lesser known historical figures so uh, if you have lesser known historical figures let us let know us, let us know oh rate us give us five stars let your friends know about our our podcast let us oh, know if you'd like if you'd like us to uh, do a a random segment that would yeah. be interesting how would steve say goodbye <laughs> what steve would say was hey do you want to run an easy 10 in the morning and just ghost you for 60 years <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> till next time folks 